A reading from the Revelation of St. John the Divine, beginning with the seventh chapter, the ninth verse. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The word of the Lord. Well, I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this morning's passage we heard from chapter 7 of the Revelation of St. John the Divine. This passage describes a remarkable vision that the Lord provided to him, in which St. John describes seeing, quote, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. While the book of Genesis begins the Bible with an array of descriptions of the consequences of human sin, including the Tower of Babel, which depicts how sin divides the peoples of the earth. Here in the final book of the Bible, St. John's Revelation depicts the kingdom of God, which exists perfectly in heaven now and will one day come fully on earth. John describes seeing this multitude of believers in all its diversity of ethnic and cultural expressions united under Jesus' rule. A dramatic reversal of the divisions that plague life on earth. And this is a perfect passage for the Feast of All Saints. As it not only heartens us about the blessings currently being experienced by the many loved ones we've lost, but it provides us with a vision for God's kingdom in full that can begin to be experienced on this side of glory to the extent that we're willing to work for it and receive it. But unfortunately, the reality is that the church has rarely reflected this vision from Revelation 7, either through our history or in the present day. 
Last week, in drawing on drawing from Christina Cleveland's book, Disunity in Christ, which I'll do more of today, we acknowledged how homogenous churches tend to be, made up of people who are relatively similar to one another. Today, on the parish level, or even the denominational or larger tradition levels, the majority of Christians tend to live and study and worship among people who are pretty much just like them. It was Martin Luther King Jr. who famously observed or lamented that Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. And this remains true as over 90% of all American churches today are at least 90% racially homogenous. And yet it's the divisions that go, these divisions go far beyond ethnicity. They're often accompanied, though, by hostility and antagonism. Cleveland shared a joke by a comedian which highlights the sort of division but also antagonism I'm talking about. This comedian said, I was walking across a bridge one day and I saw a man standing on the edge about to jump off. So I ran over and said, stop, don't do it. Why shouldn't I, he asked. Well, there's so much to live for. Like what, he asked. Well, are you religious? He said, yes. I said, me too. Are you Christian or Buddhist? Christian, he said. Me too. Are you Catholic or Protestant? Protestant, me too. Are you Episcopalian or Baptist? Baptist. Wow, me too. Are you Baptist Church of God or Baptist Church of the Lord? (laughs) Baptist Church of God. Me too. Are you original Baptist Church of God or are you reformed Baptist Church of God? Well, I'm reformed Baptist Church of God. Me too. Are you reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1879 or Reformation Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915? He said, Reformation, Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915. So I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him off. (laughs) Now, you may not be used to hearing jokes like this in church, and this may seem a bit extreme, but it's not too far beyond some of the common levels of hostility that can exist between group divisions within the larger body of Christ. That's what makes the joke funny, is that there's some truth to it, right? Funny in a dark way. What Cleveland laments is that Christians tend to rely most on our smaller cultural identities instead of our larger common identity as members of the body of Christ. But why is that? Well, we've already alluded to the fact that it's due to sin. But with Cleveland's help, I want to explain some of the deeper social dynamics that contribute to antagonism between group divisions, even in the body of Christ. First of all, when it comes to valuing the cultural diversity of the broader church, as Western Christians, we're going to be behind the eight ball with that. Because our society molds us to be highly individualistic, more so than any society in the history of the world, probably. 
And this is particularly the case for Anglo-American Protestants who tend to grasp very well notions of personal responsibility and individual sin. But when they hear, for example, someone speak from a, a more collectivist point of view about social guilt, like your people did this to my people, well, Americans are more likely to respond, American Christians are more likely to respond, wait a second, I didn't do anything to your people. Whereas for more collectivist people groups and societies, social responsibility feels obvious and self-evident. Now, it's not that collectivism is totally right and individualism is totally wrong, not at all. Christians in collectivist churches or traditions or cultures are going to be prone to their own blind spots, right? Perhaps more in the direction of individual responsibility, But Cleveland insists, and she's right, that well-rounded Christian faith involves both individual and social responsibility. The Bible holds both of these in tension and calls us to hold them in tension as well. But as American Christians, we're going to tend to struggle more to appreciate the collective idea of the body of Christ, even if we talk about it and sing about it and celebrated at times. We're going to struggle to appreciate the value of that in contrast to our individual relationship with Jesus. But despite our individualism, that's not the only problem. Despite that, we still tend to categorize other people based upon subgroups, we might call them, and derive our sense of identity from the subgroups that we're a part of. When I say subgroups, I mean groups that are smaller than or subordinate to the the large body of Christ. These can be groups based on theological positions, politics, gender, ethnicity, worship style, and so on, right? So the antagonism between these subgroups is rooted first in our tendency as humans to categorize. The human mind is designed to label and categorize just about everything from species of animals to cars to political leanings of certain regions and states, so on. I mean, I could list examples all day, right? And for the most part, this is actually really good and helpful. But unfortunately, we also tend to categorize people. And we do this, frankly, because it conserves mental energy to do so. It doesn't take too much emotional and mental energy to interact with people who are like us because they're fairly predictable. But when we, when we interact with people who are different from us, we tend to rely, at least subconsciously, to rely heavily on pre-established stereotypes that assume all people of that certain group are a certain way. And we do this in all sorts of ways, you know, in reference to all sorts of types of groups, subgroups. We do this politically, stereotyping people on the other side of the aisle as being a certain way. We, we tend to do this with people of other ethnicities, Right? And it could be that one person may have a more charitable stereotype of a certain ethnicity than another, but either way, both are stereotypes. We may do this theologically, generalizing that that all Calvinists are a certain way, or all Reformed Baptists of 1915 or whatever are a certain way, right? 
or, or that you know, everyone who doesn't baptize infants holds that position for this reason and this reason and this reason. And, or everyone who has a low view of Holy Communion you know, also believes X, Y, and Z. But when we categorize people like this, we tend to focus on our differences with them. And studies show that we tend to actually exaggerate those differences. And this leads us then to a dynamic that Cleveland calls the gold standard effect. The gold standard effect. Perhaps you can see where this is going by the name. Basically, because we tend to surround ourselves with people who are relatively similar to us, that means that the people we're most likely to converse with about things are going to be people who agree with us generally. Well, this not only causes us to become more rigid in our views, like we talked about last week, but it causes us to think that our perspectives or ways of doing things are the most normal and are the best. And this produces the gold standard effect, where we begin to think of our group, perhaps in this case, you know, the church or our particular expression of the church, as being the best, the most important, even the most typical characteristic of the church, for the church as God intended. Again, that can be whether it's being, and being Anglican or some theological position we hold or the general politics of our church or the worship style, whatever, right? We're all vulnerable to this gold standard thinking. But just because we've decided that our culture or brand of Christianity is the gold standard, that still doesn't quite explain what would cause us to have animosity towards other groups. I mean, why not just pity them for not measuring up to us? Or why not just pray that one day they'll see the light? You know? Well, the reason for that, the reason it gets to the level of animosity often, is because our identity becomes wrapped up in a group we're a part of, and we commonly fall prey to, to using that group identity to meet our need to feel good about ourselves, our need for self-esteem, for lack of a better term. You know, maybe it's just me, but have y'all noticed, I feel like I don't see nearly as many people wearing San Francisco Giants garb, swag, as I did a few years ago. Have, have y'all noticed that? You know, it wasn't long ago that you couldn't go outside and spit and not have some of it land on something with that orange SF logo with the black background emblazoned on it, right? It was everywhere. But in the last few years, not so much. I wonder why that is. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not arrogantly saying I'm above this. Y'all know I'm a sports fan too. I just cheer for different teams, including the hapless Baltimore Orioles, but also the Alabama Crimson Tide, the greatest program in the history of college football. <laughs> and just saying that made me feel good. It gave me a little dopamine hit. I could feel it. Guess which of those teams I have more shirts and paraphernalia for? (laughs) 
But moving away from just sports, get, get this. Research has discovered that when it comes to group membership, we tend to gravitate toward and form groups with similar others, whether it's related to occupation or ethnicity or church or even social roles like being a mother or being single or, or even hobbies. Right? We tend to gravitate towards similar people. And then once the group is formed, we tend to engage in group-serving biases that tend to defend the group's positive identity. We try to increase our status by associating with higher status groups, right? By wearing the Alabama garb instead of the Orioles garb, in my case, right? Distancing ourselves from the lower status groups. And if all else fails, we literally disparage other groups because in doing so, we elevate our own group. I don't even have to provide examples of this. We, this rings true, Right? The sad truth is that when we are feeling bad about ourselves, the quickest and easiest way to feel better, at least in the short term, is to put down somebody else from a group that we aren't a part of. That is the quickest way to feel better. And again, I don't have to give examples of this because even though it's, it's certainly not healthy and it's not loving, we all know what I'm talking about because we have all done it. Yes, it turns out that waging war with cultural group memberships, whether ethnicity or political affiliation or whatever, defending our groups and increasing their status by any means necessary can be quite helpful when we need a self-esteem boost, even if it comes at the expense of another group's identity. Now, as I said, we're all prone to do this. But if we want to discern where we may be doing, where we may be unhelpfully deriving self-esteem at the expense of a group that differs from us. Cleveland mentions three potential indications this is what we're doing in regard to a, a certain group identity. So number one, the first indicator is we cringe at the thought of praising that other group. Are there any, any groups that you cringe at the thought of praising? Right? I won't even ask for a show of hands. Number two, if someone associates us with that group and we go out of our way to clarify that we aren't one of them, right? And then third, and this picks up on some stuff from last week, if there is a group whose ideas or ways we don't even want to be exposed to, right? Much less listened to. That's an indicator that we are probably deriving self-esteem unhelpfully in opposition to that group. So as I hope you can see, our tendencies to not only isolate into homogenous groups, but to also derive self-esteem from, from being part of whatever the groups they are, that can really bring out the worst in us towards people that differ from us. When we define ourselves and our worth by differences rather than by love, we are invested in maintaining dividing lines rather than loving over dividing lines. And what this, bringing it back to the kind of the subject du jour, this, this causes us to devalue parts of the body of Christ that differ from us. And to see that reality that they even exist, that reality of cultural diversity, whatever it is, as more of a problem for us to be managed than a gift to receive from. 
And yet here we have this picture in Revelation 7 that is celebrating that cultural diversity. Now, how might this be true? How might the possibility of cultural diversity actually be a gift within the body of Christ? Well, there's two ways I want to highlight. The first is in regard to us individually. And that's in regard to the advancement of God's project in our individual lives of transforming us into the likeness of his son. Which, as Luke highlighted in his sermon a few weeks ago, is meant to be making us more like Jesus both in wisdom and in character, right? Wise as a serpent, gentle as a dove. Now, if we were all finished products, perhaps it wouldn't be beneficial to be surrounded by, you know, it, it, perhaps it would be beneficial to only be surrounded by people who mirror us if we were finished products. But given that all of us are limited, both in our understanding of the truth and our capacity to love others, the Lord can use our interactions with believers who differ from us culturally, whether it be ethnically, theologically, gender, otherwise, he can use that to reveal areas for continued growth that if we just remained in our homogenous groups, isolated, might remain forever hidden from our awareness. Has God ever done that? Has God ever used exposure to some idea that you never would have heard in you know, the group of people that's mostly like you to just blow your mind and think, oh my gosh, I've been blind to that for years? It's like the proverb says, as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his neighbor. In fact, Cleveland states something really profound here. I've been, I've been thinking about it all week. She, she observes that when it comes to evangelism, cultural comfort and similarity can, can be helpful, right? So when people are coming to Jesus, it can help to kind of do that potentially in a context where people are pretty similar. It's like, oh, you're pretty similar to me and you follow Jesus. Like, oh, I can get over this bridge, right? But when it comes to discipleship, she says, our life in Christ after conversion, she says, in order to follow God, we must cross into other cultures because that's what Jesus did in the incarnation and the cross, right? He didn't stay up there in heaven where everything was great and comfortable, right? As Philippians 2 says. No, he put that aside, emptied himself, and came to be among us. So if we're following him, then we should actually expect him to lead us into scenarios that are outside of our comfort zones. Which Cleveland notes is where most good things happen anyway. So that's the first advantage, kind of a personal spiritual growth advantage. The way diversity can be a gift. But in addition to our own spiritual growth, there's also significant reason to believe that cultural diversity within the body of Christ is critical for any expression of the church, a parish, to be able to advance the kingdom of God. And for this point, I included the passage from 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 today, where the metaphor of the church as a human body is most fully explained. Now, on the most straightforward level, Paul's encouraging the Corinthian Christians 
to value the diversity of spiritual gifts among the other believers who were already in their particular church. But Cleveland suggests this also, this metaphor also applies to the value of the cultural diversities of theology and ethnicity within the broader church. The value of that, if we want to be able to advance the kingdom, that the church on earth is at its best, at its strongest and most effective, at least from God's perspective, when it reflects the cultural diversity St. John describes in the Revelation today. So that's the biblical truth. But sociological research backs this up as it shows that diverse groups come up with more creative and more effective ideas than groups composed of similar people. And there's also a study that shows that that groups composed of similar people learn less and less over time, right? Nobody's got new ideas. They're all just mirroring one another, kind of narcissistically. So this makes sense with the 1 Corinthians uh, metaphor of the body. Just for example, I thought this was cool. Cleveland invites us to think about the simple action of a human body swatting off a fly when it lands on the arm or something. Think about all that requires. First, it requires our skin to sense that the fly has landed, perhaps helped by our ears if they hear the buzz, which then sends that message to our brain that there's a fly bugging us, right? And that brain, our brain then makes the executive decision about how to deal with the fly and sends multiple coordinated messages to different parts to ultimately direct our motor muscles aided by the vision of our eyes to, in a coordinated fashion, swat the fly away. And if we're really good, to actually... <laughs> just like never... Well, a similar level of interdependence on different parts within the body of Christ with different gifts and abilities and experiences, cultural experiences, can help us enhance our ability to make disciples for Christ of all nations, our great commission. And yet we shouldn't mix that up with token diversity. Token diversity doesn't work because every part for it to work, for diversity to be uh, valuable, every part has to have an equal status. And we'll, we'll get to more on that in a minute. But valuing the ethnic, theological, cultural diversity of other believers, that's not about checking a box or being PC, right? Rather, our collective and individual spiritual health is in need of it. It's in the book of Revelation for a reason. And here's the good news. The good news in all of this is that what that vision from Revelation means to communicate is that in Christ, we have all been given the tools necessary to rise above the cultural divisions that hinder our individual growth And that hinder the impact that we as a parish can have for Christ's kingdom. Just to begin with, while the rest of the world has little choice but to derive their self-esteem from comparison to others and diminishing others, which is of course a zero-sum game, God calls us to begin learning to find our true source of self-esteem. Where? In Christ's love for us. 
right, as demonstrated on the cross. And that is a well that never runs dry. That's not a zero-sum game. There's plenty for everybody. But learning to actually do this, like it's one thing to give lip service to this in a sermon, but doing it in a daily way, it's critical, right, to be deriving our sense of worth and value from Jesus. Because only then will those subordinate identities of, based on ethnicity and gender and theology and politics, only then will those be able to actually take a back seat, particularly when we've relied on them for so long. Take a back seat to our primary identity as members of the worldwide body of Christ. But again, we should understand that the goal should not be to simply have superficial interactions with people who are different from us or for a church to be more diverse in its racial and cultural composition simply. In fact, in reality, merely superficial contact between such groups has been shown to increase conflict and hostility between them. And too often, diversity in a congregation masks the reality that what's really happened is lower status groups have had to suppress their differences and assimilate into the dominant culture of that group. This actually creates a dynamic that's often referred to as colorblindness. But it's not just an ethnic issue. It might be more apt to call it culture blindness. While while culture blindness may be well-intentioned, as Rich Velotis explains, this approach is ultimately a denial of diversity and honest differences that exist. And it's clearly not what Revelation 7-9 describes, right? It doesn't say, "I I looked out on the multitude and behold, I saw no color. I saw no difference. Not at all. Instead, it points to a model where culturally different Christians join in a common goal, but also share equal status. And the latter, equal status, that's one of the kickers, man. To work toward this requires, well, it requires a lot of us. It requires that we be willing to examine biases that we may have, cognitive biases, emotional biases toward people from other groups. And we all have them, right, by being human. It requires that we, if we do that, and we discover a past wrong, that we take responsibility for it. And so it is not just, um, it's also the grace of Christ that uniquely equips us as believers to be able to do this, right? His assurance of his love, forgiveness, and commitment to care for us, the fact that that is unconditional, no matter what we would find if we, if we self-examined, his grace is what provides us with the safety that we need to even attempt some of this very difficult stuff I'm talking about. For example, one one key here is recognizing privilege and power differentials. I know that some of those words trigger people these days for reasons I won't get into, right? But whatever side we may be on in power differentials socially, it's critical to recognize them in order to build bridges between groups, right? Or else we'll just do that same assimilation thing, right? Where everybody just mirrors the more 
more powerful group. That's the only way true reconciliation can be achieved. Rich Velotis acknowledges how difficult this can be, particularly for some to acknowledge being the beneficiary of privilege if they're on that beneficiary side, right? And this is, of course, particularly in regard to racial privilege, right? Not that that's the only form of privilege or power differential that's endemic in our society. But acknowledging racial privilege in our society is understandably uncomfortable, right? Because of how egregious some of the racist deeds are in American history. Nobody wants to feel like they're somehow being lumped in with that, right? I prefer my individualism, please, right? At the same time, to imply it's, it's all gone and the racism it just doesn't exist... Well, that's rainbows and unicorns, man. And it's when, if, if, if one does that and turns our eyes away from what's painfully obvious to so many, we are going to add to harm. So, in light of the fact that that racial thing is, is really tough, I think Velotas helpfully reframes the concept of privilege by moving away from the racial for a moment and appealing to the analogy of sexism instead. Because see, while some may be loath to admit to a legacy of racial privilege, most, well, and this may be wrong, I would like to think most are probably less combative around the question of men in our society being privileged over women, right? I mean, if you're denying that, whew, <laughs> okay, got a long way to go, Right? As Velotis describes it, quote, sexism, like racism, has been around for a long time, and not just in American society. Men have lived with a social advantage over women for millennia, right? Which has led to unjust policies, unjust systems, unjust practices, and unjust assumptions. He says, just take a quick look at who is in power in our world. Who's calling the shots, right? It's undeniable, right? Who's oppressing others? But again, these dynamics of privilege don't just apply to race and sex. They exist in regard to wealth. Uh, Maybe they even exist in regard to being an Orioles or Giants fan, right? Um, Seriously, though, these power differentials exist within the faith, right? Based upon theology, denomination, and worship style. I can tell you that Anglicanism is on the low end of the power differential in the church locally and in America, right? In Oakdale, in Stanislaus County, and in America (laughs) <laughs> you know, the Episcopal Church, historically, 100 years ago, was, was you know, the, all the senators or whatever and, and all that. But Anglicanism, we are a, a minority movement, absolutely, right? But recognizing where we are on either side of a power differential with any of these kind of group dynamics is critical, right? To know whether we're kind of on the higher status or lower status because it informs how we can seek to build a bridge with somebody on the other side. For example, Velotis explains that for reconciliation to occur between such groups, it will require listening, which we've talked about, listening on the part of both parties. But, but this is really helpful. He said, the ones who need to listen first and more often are those who have enjoyed the privileges of social power. So everybody needs to listen. But recognizing that you've been on the higher side of things 
You need to be the one to first listen and to plan on listening more often, right? Can, we, can our hearts receive that today? Velotis even talks about what he calls incarnational listening. This is challenging. He says it models the incarnation of Christ. So what it looks like is, quote, leaving our world, letting go of the familiar to us, and taking the risk of entering into someone else's world where we would practice active, active, humble, and curious listening and allow ourselves to be formed by others, opening up to their worldviews while holding on to ourselves. Help me, Jesus. You know? It's kind of like I get it, but do I get it? Right? So where those with a higher status can most contribute to reconciliation is through listening, but Cleveland insists that the low status group members have an important role to play as well, and that's namely that they have to do the difficult work, more often, of forgiveness. Right? Well, as Christians, we have to lead the way in recognizing this stuff, in, in recognizing ways we've benefited from privilege at the expense of others in society or in the church, or the ways that we carry wounds from being on the short end of the stick. And in Christ, the vision cast for us in Revelation 7 is actually possible. It can be realized in our individual and collective lives to a greater degree, but such efforts are not for the faint of heart. Right? If you just want come to Jesus wanting your fire insurance, this ain't going to be what you're down with. Right? Cleveland admits that the work of reconciliation is the work of the cross, which is to say it will often be painful. And yet that is the way the Lord has called us to follow. If we want to follow him, He's called us to take up our cross. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.